Hi, my name's Tara Humphrey and welcome to the Business of Healthcare podcast, where I will be sharing interviews, insights, project management, leadership training and lessons learned from the field of healthcare to improve the delivery of your projects and improve your business performance. Hi, my name's Tara Humphrey and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. Today, I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing my friend Sophie Edwards. I invited Sophie onto this podcast because she has got a way of explaining change in a way that makes you feel inspired, motivated. She helps you break it down and she helps you take the tools and the theory and explains them and implements them in a way that is really practical and is actually really fun. In this interview, we talk about the difference between transformational and transactional change and why we shouldn't get too hung up on trying to create this big transformational change. We talk about the leadership skills required to lead system-wide change. And we also talk about imposter syndrome because we know that it comes up and it especially comes up when you're being pushed out of your comfort zone. We also talk about the importance of developing relationships, the importance of, you know, having excellent communication skills and listening and not being frightened to change and adapt approaches when you get that feedback and that data, which tells you maybe we should pivot. She also talks about the importance of um, self-reflection and building an alliance of support around you because facilitating change at a large scale can be scary um, but also extremely extremely rewarding and Sophie also has pointed us in the direction of some fantastic tools to help facilitators of change move forward if you like it please let me know share it for us on social media you can find me on LinkedIn I am Tara Humphrey and on Twitter I am at THC Primary Care and My website is, or our website is, I should say, www.thcprimarycare.co.uk. Hi, Sophie. Thank you so much for joining me on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? I'm great, thank you. So Sophie and I know each other. We work together on the NHS England and NHS Improvement Time for Care team. We've also we've also done a podcast together with Source for Networks on governance. And I just love talking to Sophie. I could talk to her all day. <laughs> and I can talk all day. <laughs> so Sophie, could you introduce our listeners to what you do and some of the roles that you are involved in? Sure. So as well as the work that you've just talked about there with the Time for Care team, working out with practices and networks in primary care, um, I also do leadership and development work around change, actually helping organisations think about the changes that they want to bring about internally, externally, and how they need to be and behave and work together to do it. So I do that as a sort of independent piece of consulting as well. Excellent. Why I wanted to talk to you, and I think that our conversation will be helpful to others, is that I wanted to talk to you about the notion of transformational change and transactional change. I hear the word all the time, practices in particular, because we work in the field of primary care. We're helping practices, you know, transform their workforce and transform the way they work. And I just think that it's a really interesting topic. It's multi-layered there's multiple perspectives and I wanted to ask you and it's just a discussion a bit of a debate on 
what does transformational change look and feel like to you, given all your experience? Okay. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think one thing that I'd say before thinking about what transformational change looks like is that I think there's a, there's a strange opposition we've got at the moment between transactional and transformational change. And the way I often hear change talked about at the moment is that transactional change is somehow lesser and not, not quite bad, but it's, it's not the stuff that people get excited about. And somehow transformational change is good. So transformational, transformational change, good. Transactional change, mm, not so much. And I guess my starting point with all of this is, as long as the change that's happening is going in, broadly speaking, the direction you all want it to, change is good. So let's not get too caught up on the distinction between the two. And at the same time, there is a distinction between the two. But I think if you're constantly thinking, oh, transactional, shouldn't be doing transactional change, it's not as important, it doesn't matter, you're kind of missing something. But if we think about the difference between transformational and transactional change, um, for me, transactional change tends to be more about doing what you're already doing, but maybe a bit better, a bit more productive in how you're doing it. But it's essentially the same kind of thing, just a bit better. Whereas transformational change is where it's much more about the how. How are you doing things? It might be about mindsets that are transforming. It might be about working with the wider system. So it's not just the things within your grasp that you're tweaking. It's you're working in a different way, using different skills, different people to make a change that's beyond just the routine day to day. And what it feels like, I think you feel it at a human level more than anything. When, you, when, when there's a transformational change that's occurred, you can feel that mindsets have shifted and behavior has shifted as well as the stuff that you are doing. So that's how I would draw the distinction between the two. Change in general, why do you think it's so hard to achieve? Good question. And there are two things coming into my head. The first is, why is it hard to achieve? Well, it's actually, I think, about time pressure. And everybody is under pressure of time. I think in modern life, I think everybody is. And what that means is that we tend to kind of stay in our mental bias. You have to do some mental shortcuts. It takes a lot of time to stop and think differently and think, oh, how could it be different? So you, so you, you stay in your mental values. You're relying on your assumptions, the way that you know people behave. It, it's all mental shortcuts because you haven't got time to kind of slow it down and, and rethink. The other thing I think makes it difficult is it's disruptive. Change means that what you're doing isn't quite right. So that already makes people feel a bit defensive often. But it's disruptive. and when you're against the clock, when you're feeling pressured, we're all living in complex times. There's so much complexity going on and uncertainty what we've gone. To actually have to allow yourself to be disrupted and do something differently, it, that takes real effort. And it's much, much easier when there's loads of pressure going on all around you to stay with your status quo and stay with what you're comfortable with. And I think actually the third thing I think is that most people want slightly different things. <laughs> and that's human nature. We all have different drivers, different motivations. And, and it's really time-consuming but important to actually find out what you've got in common and more or less get pointing in the same direction. That takes time and we don't often make time to do it. So I think that's what I would say. When thinking about how we work together on the Time for Care programme, so we're getting practices, primary care networks to come together to say there are a number of challenges that you guys are experiencing, a number of things you need to deliver on. But when you talk about time, how do you, you know, what are we saying to get practices to say, oh, I've got patients queuing out the door, I've got issues left, right and centre, I'm, you know, I'm not spending quality time with my family, you know, come and spend some time to see what we've got in common. What is the hook and what is the pull to make people commit to doing that? 
<laughs> well, it's not easy, is it? We know that. And the first answer you often get is that people haven't got time to make the changes that are going to give them some time back. And I know that one of the things that I've heard you say really helpfully to groups is reminding them that to get any kind of shift requires a little bit of effort to start with. But you've got to, you've got to, I think, really work with where people are. Where's the pain in the system for them? What is the stuff that, what's the price of not making the change as well? So when we're stuck doing something because it's familiar, even though we know it doesn't work, there is a big price that we pay, not just in terms of the productivity and the outcomes, but in terms of just the mental energy. And even sometimes if it's really poor, the misery that that's causing for people. So I think helping people slow down and think, well, what's the price of not making the change? What's the cost of continuing the way that you are? And also, I think, again, maybe it comes back down to that distinction between transactional and, and transformational, this idea that it's only worth doing if it's transformational. If a group of practices can come together and find something small, even if it feels a bit more transactional that they can do together, that will give them just that little bit more time back. It doesn't have to be a huge amount of time. It doesn't have to be a vast saving every day to add up to something big. Then that's a good place to start. If you start trying to, what's the phrase about eating elephants? I always get it wrong. Yeah, don't try and eat the elephant whole. If you work together to find something small, even if it feels at that transactional end of the spectrum, and start there rather than trying to take on the whole system, then you're probably going to see some gains. I think the word transformational can be quite scary to some. And I think when we're asking people, you know, what's their big vision and how are they going to transform? While some people, you know, you're like they've got their five, 10 year vision and they know what they want to do. But I think if you're not in that headspace, I think starting with the small stuff, the seemingly transactional stuff is a good place, a good place to start. It's like just small steps rather than trying to eat the elephant. And actually, people can, I think that's so true, people can make a whole set of small changes adds up to a lot. And what that helps people do as well, I think one, you, you asked me about why is change so hard to achieve? And I think a lot of us have tried to make change happen. And you get your fingers burned, you get tipped out the boat, you upset people, or it just doesn't happen, it fizzles out. And so you kind of start to lose a bit of faith that any kind of change is possible. You start to lose that belief that you can make a difference and make something happen that's different. So doing some small work can really help people get their faith back that like change is possible. And you start small and you bring a few people along and people start to feel, oh, hang on. Um, actually, we did make we did do something there. Something changed. And that gives them that bit more optimism to try something fresh next time. And gradually over time, you might be taking on some huge changes, massive, radical, transformational changes. But trying to start from that point, unless you've got a lot of energy and will behind you, is, is a big ask. And I think particularly for primary care networks, who are often coming together for the first time as a group and haven't had the chance to get to know each other understand what makes each other tick and what their common strengths are and their common needs. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for starting small at the moment. Get your foundations in place. So we're talking about change across multiple organisations and all within a team, within a practice. Does everybody need to be on board to, for the change to progress? Well, that's a really interesting question. And I think probably my first answer is it depends on the nature of the change. There are some things that you might choose to do that will only work if everybody gets on board. And there isn't much point in trying to make a change happen if you need everyone there and you don't have some participants or some people are actually going to block the change. 
And there are some good tools. I don't know whether maybe we can share them after the podcast. That'll help you think about where your stakeholders are in relation to the change project and think about, do I need, do I need to just bypass them or do I need to actually shift their opinion? But I would say really be clear. Do, does everybody need to be part of this for it to work? And if it does, there's not much point in setting off if you know that you've got to have them all there from the start, you need to go back to basics and do that engagement building and help that help the people who are not participating understand the why and hopefully bring them on board. But other than that, I think there's a surprising amount you can do that is transformational, even if not everybody's involved. If, I'm just thinking of a primary care network example. If you, for example, you're bringing a pharmacist in, you've got the money for doing that, but not all of practices want to take part in a pharmacy project as long as they've agreed as long as they've agreed that you can work on that together depends on what your governance structure is and your voting structures are but as long as they've said that's okay you can do some fantastic work together to integrate the practices who are going to use the pharmacist get your prescribing processes harmonized start working with your pharmacies locally really shift how that's done and then you probably find that the practices that perhaps didn't feel it had value for them and they weren't wanting to be part of it will start to shift and think okay either how do we get on board with this or maybe next time there's one of these sorts of new roles that require that bit of work and we'll give it a try so i would i think to to not attempt to do something in that more transformational space simply because not everybody's on board from the start as a blanket rule i wouldn't go down that road just be clear whether it does require everyone there does that answer that yeah do you think that approach could end up with the practices or people not being engaged but getting the benefit but then thinking well I wasn't in I wasn't involved in that but I still really benefited from it I'll just hang back and see what the next change is going to be like and reap the rewards sitting back hands behind the desk going I'll wait for it to come to me it's a it's a good chance you know the first thought that went through my head was well is that a problem Actually, you know, is it the end of the world if in the unlikely event, because it probably is quite unlikely that someone's going to say, fine, I'm not going to get involved. Is that actually a problem? Unless there's a real cost to the others who are taking part in them doing that, you might find that that's good enough for now. If if it is a problem, then that's going to take a conversation, isn't it? That's going to take an honest conversation about, well, if you want to benefit from this change that's happening, what are you prepared to contribute to it? So that's your other route. You actually have to have that honest conversation with them. But it'd be easy to do that from a position of look what the benefits are, because there's a gain, isn't there, for the practice or the other organisation, whether it's PCN or somebody else, in participating if they can see that they're getting benefits. And ultimately, by and large, we tend to see, don't we, over time, if something's going really well, eventually people want to be part of it. So maybe there's also something in here about making sure you can show others about the benefits of your change because change costs a lot of effort. And often we do the change and then we don't take that time, do we, to actually really trumpet what's happened and to make sure people know that a change happened, what helped with the change, who's contributed, that, that sort of celebration part of it. Half the time we get to this big change, we do it, and then we're looking again, aren't we, at the next mountaintop and go, right, what now? We don't do that stop and look around and, and have a nice picnic and say, we got here, didn't we do well, and share that with others that you need to influence making a bit of time to do that I think is important do you ever hear has anybody ever said to you this change is not financially in my interest why why would I do it another good question I think every change involves giving something up doesn't it change doesn't happen you always have to give something up even if it's just the status quo that you're giving up you are giving something up so it's a reasonable point I don't think there's an easy answer for it other than that. What's the price of staying the same? What is the cost of not making the change? 
and being clear, as clear as you can be, about what the benefits over time, what's the return on the investment of the time that you're going to put in. But I don't think there's an easy answer. Sometimes the system just tells you you've got to make a change whether or not you want to in the short term or not. So in thinking about the leaders of change, and let's take primary care clinical directors as an example, and just it kind of goes back to that, how do you get everybody engaged? Lots of CDs say to me, I've got one or two practices that just don't want to play. And that really bothers them. They don't feel like they can move forward or if they move forward without them, that doesn't feel good to them. What can we say to them to say, it doesn't have to be all or nothing without that people feeling resentment? I think, again, my starting point would be, for this change to happen, is it essential that everybody's on board? Is it actually critical that everybody buys in, contributes their resource or whatever it is that you're going to do together? And if it is, you've got to confront that because there's no point starting off, as just saying, on a change project that, every, that will only work if everybody does it, if not everybody is going to do it. But beyond that, I think there's also something for whether you're a clinical director or any kind of change or trying to lead some change about go with the willing in the first instance. Get your willing people on board, work together to, re- to do something that's small enough to have a decent return in a reasonable amount of time. And then make sure you've got those people who are your advocates, who are your champions, who are going to influence the people that you're perhaps struggling to get on board. But we have to start with the willing. So often with change that we don't we it's a, unless there's a really, really system must do, you cannot avoid. So your, your reluctant partners have to do it because the system is forcing them to do it. Most of the time with change, you haven't got everybody on board from the start. So starting with the willing, finding something that's small enough to make some progress is probably the, be- the best thing that you can do in that circumstance. I'm just wondering from outside your experience, you've done a lot of work around working with people down to do projects, they might not be all signed up and on board. What do you do when you're starting with a group where you know you've got variable commitments in the room? Just like you said, it just starts small. And I think I'm in a position to, I like to hold people's hands and say, you know, I will do this. Can you do that? Or let's do it together. So I think sometimes people think it's too big for them or... yeah it's not beneath them or they just think I shouldn't get involved in that and I think sometimes showing people the process showing people how you might communicate showing people how the system works helps inform them so they're like oh oh, I didn't realize that oh okay and you kind of walk them through it hold their hands and then I slowly take start to take a step back when they've got the confidence it's often I think confidence and a lack of understanding and a lack of appreciation so I've been involved in lots of projects where people haven't wanted to get involved and the more you talk to them, they, they just genuinely don't understand. They don't understand the job, yeah. the acronym. They don't understand the time frame. Sometimes the acronym is the same as a different acronym, a different one. <laughs> it's true, so yeah. One, it means something different. So you're, you're both talking completely different languages. And I think when you're trying to talk to people on the fly and, you know, you phone people up and say, have you got five minutes and try to explain a complex project to them? You know, they're not... We shouldn't be surprised when they're like, yeah, no, (laughs) bye. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, or even worse in some ways, isn't it? They kind of go, yeah, 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 no, I'll do that. But you know that they're not on board. They haven't seen the bike. I think that's, two things went through my head when you said that. One was, if you know it's going to take more than five minutes to explain to someone to get them on board, actually make the time to do it. I know I'm guilty of a ring. So have you got 10 minutes for a chat? And it's like, I know this is a half hour engagement conversation. And I really need to understand what that person wants before I can even begin to think about whether what I'm offering 
in the way of you know suggestions is is going to land with them so we tend to kind of play that time down and make it into something that seems like very quick and easy but actually this is this is like relationship building work isn't it and the other one I was thinking was that phrase I can't remember where I read this but there's a phrase that's really helpful to get people to commit isn't there is it you have it rather than saying will you do this or can you do this the phrase that I've heard psychologists say is most effective is would you be willing to and there's something about that language would you be willing to somehow taps into a bit more choice for the other person and a sense of them understand there's some there's some mental connection that happens with that phrase would you be willing to is apparently a better way of framing your ask around getting people involved than can you do this or will you do this and I, whenever I remember to do that I notice that I do get more positive responses so maybe there is something in the language that we use as well being clear about an ask but also framing it in a particular way and then just one other thought that went through my head as you were saying that I was just thinking about when you're trying to get a change project going it's a bit like you've got a brilliant idea and you want everyone to get involved it's a bit like having a party and you're like really hoping that loads of people are going to come, but it's kind of your party and you're really excited about it. And it's actually quite a vulnerable space to be in as a leader as well. So I think one of the other things that if you're thinking that you're trying to lead change is recognizing that you're putting yourself on the line a little bit. How do you support yourself and who do you need to surround yourself with to help you? with that because you are putting yourself out you're putting your head above the parapet often that's what it feels like you're putting yourself a little bit on the line so take care of yourself when you do it and make sure that you you know what you need to be in that space and that you've got some allies around you who can support you in that role because it does ask something of you to lead change yeah another thing i was thinking about was it's it's as simple as just meeting people and just rather than writing sometimes you do need a proposal absolutely but in that initial phase it is just having conversations and asking people what do you think what do you understand by x and it's listening if generally lots of people if it's not a mandated voluntary change mm. ask people what their opinion is and say it's just a starting point so i'll say to the people i'm i'm not wedded to the how it gets done how do you think it would be best and making f- people feel like they are part of it and that they can actually influence it and also just giving people time and i know that's hard because you can't spend you know months and months and months just chatting but i think really what i see is that you know something's coming down the line from quite far away then all of a sudden a month to go you know the contract's ready and everybody yeah. has to get on board and it's a little bit like we knew about this ages ago why are we not investing in planning time and that engagement time and testing and you know when you send out a communication and you double you will say you're collecting data if you hear nothing it's data if you receive a really overpowering negative response look at that that. yeah but look at it there's something in that that's giving you some useful information and i think being objective as a facilitator as the leader you may have you know, the vision, but there's also something around, we are facilitators and actually it's not our way, our way or the highway. And I think it is just making sure people are involved and that you're listening and iterating and saying, let's test it, let's try. And if it doesn't work, it's not a failure. It's like, okay, we'll just pivot. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful thing, reframing it, isn't it? Because when, and especially transformational change, people often feel exhausted before you've even finished the sentence. The word transformational people are like, oh God, not more. <laughs> so how you how do you do those small tests of change? And we know the work that we do with Time for Care is all about that, that quality improvement approach, 
try something small, build, keep learning. And there is also maybe something around, think about who's the messenger for the change as well. You know, leaders tend to think that they're the people who need to be the, the, the face of the change. Actually, you may be the worst person to be the face of that change. So having that conversation, we're getting some honest feedback from your allies. Who needs to be the ambassador, that the, the face of the change? And is it actually the leader this time or is it somebody else in the system? Sometimes leaders have to get out of the way of the change. Often, actually, I do think often I find where this is leaders across the whole of the sectors I work with, private sector, voluntary sector and so forth. Leaders often really get in the way of the change they want to see. And actually having people around you that can help you see that a bit, reflect that and actually get out of the way of the change is really really important as well. You could be blocking things in ways that you don't appreciate yourself just because of the, the way that people perceive you, the role that you've got, what you represent to them. You need to be able to look at that. Can you give me an example of that? I'm just trying to think of with another organisation I've worked with, going back a couple of years now, the person who wanted to make the change happened. It was it was a series of, of quite sort of practical changes that, that he really wanted to push through the organisation to how things are done. So it's kind of, I guess, in the quality improvement scheme, but it wasn't in health. It was his reputation in that was for kind of the vo- he was the voice of head office in, in the organisation. He was perceived as the voice of head office in that particular part of the organisation. And he was associated with changes that were much more about business efficiency and bottom line than about how people felt. And actually, in his heart, he thought that what he wanted to promote was about was going to help people also feel better. But that's not how he was received because of his role and because the way he worked. And so when he gave those messages, people assumed that these changes were only in the interest of the bottom line and the business. They couldn't see any benefit around their own working lives. And it was quite hard for him to recognize that. And it took a while for him to recognize that actually the voice of the change needed to be elsewhere. There were other people in the team who had a different relationship, represented something different to the workforce. And by helping them voice the change and actually get some of their teams voicing the change, it started to move away a bit from that sort of big stick approach to change to people starting to think, oh, okay, maybe this is going to be in my interest as well. Because people have got to feel that change is in their interest. Otherwise, every inch of them is going to unconsciously resist. What do you say to somebody that is not as well known in their network, doesn't have the influence of, you know, and the credibility of, you know, lots of years, but they are really keen, but everybody looks at them and thinks, who are you? You know, you don't have the credibility to, you know, to stand up and lead this change. How do we give people the opportunity to lead change without them leading the change? I think it's a really good question. I think there's an easy answer, but I think a couple of routes to try. Again, I think it does come back to start small. If you want to sort of present yourself as, as a positive force for change, choosing some massive complex project that has a high likelihood of failing unless you get everybody on board, you, you're kind of setting yourself up with a big mountain to climb there. So if you need to, to show your change leadership chops, start small and make sure it's something that you've got some allies around. If, if you're the only one, I suppose that's the other thing that made me think when you said that, Sarah, was if you're the only one who wants the change to happen, you really need to think about whether that change is needed. You may be a prophet in the wilderness, the only person who's seen this, but it's more likely <laughs> that it's your hobby horse. <laughs> it might be. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they are. I mean, we must never lose track of that, but really have a think. If you're the only voice, who's saying this change needs to happen, you, you do need to stress test that idea that you've got and get some honest feedback about what is going on in the system. But I think a lot of it is about 
building your allegiances, alliances, allegiances, alliances for change. I don't, I, I don't have much truck these days with that sort of old school seven step approach to change that kind of line, everything up comms down the line. Cause I don't think that's how people work. I think people go along with it and then they, they resist it in their own quiet ways. But I think getting allies in who will help start good conversations, it is all about changing the conversation at the end of the day, isn't it? And all of this work happens in conversations. So we've talked about in regards to, you know, what skills as a leader need. We've talked about the ability to build kind of alliances and relationships and to listen. I think peppered throughout this interview are really key questions. So knowing what questions to ask and allowing, you know, that small test of change, not being frightened to, you know, change your approach. It's all learning. It's all learning. What other skills do people need to be able to lead these system wide changes ultimately? So I'm probably getting to some sort of quite practical stuff. I just want to think about that self-awareness piece that we kind of touched on. I do think you have to build that awareness of yourself, how you received, what you represent to other people and get some feedback on that, whether it's, you know, classic psychometric tools. There's some free ones online that are much better than others, in my view, for get, giving you a bit of a sense of where your strengths and flaws might be when you're trying to lead change. But I do think that's really important having the ability to to really take stock of whether you whether you're handling the change right whether your whether your default setting is right for the change that you want to bring about and being willing to make that change is really important and if you're not sure for yourself get some feedback from others that are close to you and consider whether it is you that needs to be that visible face of change so that, that that's one i think the other part of it a lot we put an awful lot of pressure on our leaders to be the best storytellers in the world don't we the moment there's a big thing about narratives of change and a leader's got to be able to do an amazing ted talk where they show their personal growth journey but somehow in the context of making the case for change and you, know, you can do ted training talks TED training sessions now, can't you, to learn how to talk like a TED, so you can turn your personal journey into the metaphor for the big change you want to make. But that puts a lot of pressure on leaders, I think, to be the amazing spokespeople for change. And some people are better storytellers and better, you know, visioners than others. So, but I do think it's worth paying real attention as a leader to, to that why, to your own why for doing it, and also really showing interest in other people's why, because actually it's not just that it's all about your own why, you've got to enjoy other people's drivers and motivations to your own. So being able to think and articulate honestly why it matters to you and then being willing to listen and you talked about listening earlier but really being willing to listen to other people's whys and their why nots openly and bring them into yours I think is a really key skill for change and the ability to well or the, the caring enough about the people matters because that's what will stop you from just plowing on that's the bit that will make you stop take stock check in where people are have you still got people with you? Are you still really playing back the strengths, playing back the, the celebrations, helping them celebrate, helping them, helping them see the value of sticking with it when it gets into sticky weather? Because it will. Sticky weather, stormy weather. <laughs> Before we kind of come to a close and share some resources and tools, I would like to talk about imposter syndrome. So... <laughs> I never get without, that. That's such just so true. I am. <laughs> no, I'm not going to talk. I, as you know, I've, I've never heard of it until you mentioned it just now. <laughs> so we all have it, don't we? Yeah, lots of leaders, just people in general, 
So where you talk about the skills around self-reflection and checking in, that self-reflection can bring up a whole host of emotions where yeah. you doubt your ability. You know, I said this, did it come across like that? Why are they looking like that? Who am I? And I just think it's worth highlighting because when you put yourself forwards, especially to mm-hmm. do a leadership change, you are putting your head above the parapet. And if you are self-reflective, you can take that quite far. And I just think what advice, and we all have it. I mean, we have loads of conversations about this all the time. Yeah, totally. <laughs> oh, what do you call it? Oh, what did you, I think about your, was it your inner voice? Yeah, inner critic. Your inner critic. Well, some people have an inner voice saying, oh, you're brilliant, keep going. But the most of us have an inner critic going, what are you doing? No one likes it. So how do we just keep cracking on when that inner critic is constantly going who are you to be standing up and leading this change? Because I, I hear it every, every day in my own head, but in also in other people's heads. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's an interesting thing about the inner critic and relationship with change, I think. So I think my inner critic is often quite scared of change and is actually trying to get me to stay the same a lot of the time. So I think there's something about recognising that when you're doing change work, your, your inner critic is probably going to be more vocal than it usually is. Fighting your inner critic doesn't tend to work. Somehow you're kind of giving it a bit more energy than it needs. So when I'm at my best with my inner critic, I'm able to do to say thanks for that. Sometimes there's some useful data in it. So there is a little bit of paying attention to it and just thinking, actually, is that right? Or is this just my inner critic being worried and a bit scared about a change that's going to come? And when I think about my inner critic as that voice rather than the one that thinks it knows better, about life than me I find it much easier to, 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 to let the inner critic go but I think the other part of it is that it, it is it is resonant for all of us very few people don't have an inner critic and I'm slightly concerned about the ones that don't have one because <laughs> that would seem to me to be that they're not that aware of themselves but surround yourself find some people who's who you know have your back and respect you. I think to try and do change on your own is really tough work. It's not for the faint-hearted and it's not it's not a solo project. Find some people who you do care about and who care about you and make them the people that you think and process this thing through because you will get some flack. If you make a change happen, you're disrupting the system and you'll get some flack. So you need some people around you to do that. And there's nothing worse and finding yourself on the on your own with only the negative criticism, you need to make sure that you've got some people around you who you trust and who will give you both the, what's the, word, the constructive feedback, but also the praise and the support that you need to do the work well. Find yourself a Sophie Edwards if you don't already have. <laughs> or a Tara Humphreys. <laughs> or just find yourself somebody that you trust and who trusts you. Yeah. And just be honest with spend you a bit of time. Because- we're not perfect, but I think we, we're all doing a better job than we think that we are if we were just left yeah. in our own thought process. Okay, let's give our listeners some resources that can help them to make those first steps when they are facilitating a change. It's called the change model. And it's, the, it's used a lot in health and care. So if you, look up, if you Google change model health and care, you'll come across a wonderful jigsaw type model image with a whole range of dimensions that have been identified as really key to pay attention to when you're doing any kind of change work so that those model that those dimensions rather were the result of a lot of research into why some projects work 
and why a lot of projects, by far the majority, fail. And that that model allows you on your own, but also with the group that you've got leading change or even the people that you want to involve change, to really think through what are the things you need to pay attention to. I'm not going to list them all now, but there are things like leadership for all. So is it just one person leading it or is it actually, have you really got the people who are involved in doing the do and who need to influence? Have they got leadership roles as well? Do you understand something that, that we call in our work as the system drivers? So that's the stuff going on in the context that you're operating in that might make your change more or less likely to succeed. Do you know what they are? If you can't influence them, do you at least know what's going on that will either help or that you can really pull on or that will get in your way that you need to find a workaround for? Have you motivated and mobilized the people who need to be involved in this work right the way through the chain? Have you really understood your baseline, where you're starting from? Do you actually understand the problem that you're trying to fix before you start? So often we set off thinking, oh, that doesn't quite work. And we set off with this assumption in our head that we know what to do about it. But actually, if you really understood it, can you prove the change? Can you measure the change? And at the heart of that in the middle is something that we call the shared purpose. So it is that making time to connect with the why it matters. Why bother to do this? Why go through the pain of the change and really having some good conversations? So I thoroughly recommend that tool. If you Google it, you'll find a whole suite of resources around it that have some great questions that you can be asking if you're a change leader of your group or if you're a facilitator of other people doing change work. It's a great model. And I've used variations of it outside the health sector, although it's for the health and care sector. I've used variations of that in my other work in other sectors. So that's one I would say. Another couple of tools I think are really good for lifting people out of that transactional kind of just keeping things the way they are and helping free up people's thinking a bit trying to get them out of the assumptions that are kind of holding them in the same space and there are two suites of tools there i think we maybe can put the links out there but you can also google them the first is from a brilliant set of facilitator tools called liberating structures and if you google liberating structures you'll come across a website that has these fantastic tools it's all like a, a free what they call it open source stuff that you can download as facilitators and if you look at the liberating structures menu you'll see a whole stream of tools that you can use one of the ones that i think is really good for getting people out of the mental model mental valleys rather is called tris i'm not going to try and explain it in detail now because they do it far better than i do but basically it invites you to think of all the ways you could make sure that whatever you do in your change project or the thing you're trying to do could fail and how could you make sure it failed? And then you do a really fun exercise with groups where you get them brainstorming around that. And it's almost like it uses reverse psychology to think, well, there are all the things we could do if we wanted to make sure it didn't work. What do we need to stop doing? What are we already doing that will get in the way of our change effort? And how do we turn it around? So that's a really good, lively tool. It always gets people laughing. So go to Liberating Structures. You'll find loads of good stuff there anyway, but Triz in particular. And then the other set of tools I think are really effective. If you Google Thinking Differently and the NHS Institute for Improvement, you'll find it a really good set of simple tools you can use to get people out of their mental valleys. And one in particular I think is great for getting folk to think a bit more differently, think a bit more radically, is called Breaking the Rules. And it's a great exercise and another one that always gets some good laughter going. And laughter doesn't half make a difference when you're trying to do change work. It's a great one for getting you to look at what are the assumptions you're making about how things must be done. And if you didn't have those assumptions, what might you try differently? So that breaking the rules tool, I think, is, is a really great one for getting a very different kind of conversation going. But there's lots of other tools in both liberating structures and in that thinking differently. And they are great. Sophie, thank you. Thank you so much for giving back your time. I know how busy you are. Thank you. It's been great.
if people want to get in touch with you, and I know that they will, where can they find you? I'm on LinkedIn. That's probably the best way to find me. If it's NHS England time for care work, you can also Google that. It'll take you to NHS England. And certainly if there are people out there doing work in primary care that are thinking, how do we get some thoughts and support and idea around quality improvement in primary care, do get in touch with that programme because that's what it's there for. But you can find me as well on LinkedIn. Okay, Sophie. I will not see you soon. And yeah, thanks again. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode and we hope that you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy it, we would love it if you left us an iTunes review or if you comment, like and share it on our social media channels. You can find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care and on LinkedIn, just look for Tara Humphrey. So the Business of Healthcare podcast is being brought to you by THC Primary Care. We are a project management company specialising in the development of primary care networks, GP federations and training hubs. If you need support or you are looking for advice on how to progress one of your initiatives, please drop us an email so I can arrange a call with you so we can discuss this further. Our email is admin at thcprimarycare.co.uk. We've been helping primary care networks with their development plans, helping them to make the most of their network meetings, sharing training resources. We've had questions like what do we include in a project plan? We have implemented network-based contracts across GP federations. We also support the day-to-day operational management of training hubs and have also got experience in setting them up from scratch. If we can't help you, we definitely know some people who will be able to help you. So please do get in touch. And that's just to remind you, our email address is admin at thcprimarycare.co.uk or come and find us on www.thcprimarycare.co.uk. And in the meantime, please tune in to the next episode of the Business of Healthcare podcast. <laughs>